we're going to see a similar theme of judgment, and this time God is not only going to address his people Judah, but some of the neighboring nations around them. Welcome to Working with the Word, a weekly podcast designed to equip you with the skills and confidence for deeper daily Bible study. I'm Jeff O'Rear. And I'm Emerson Brown, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 38. Thanks for tuning in today. We are so glad you're joining us as we are exercising and improving our Bible study skills with the book of Zephaniah. Last week, we noticed that God is angry with His people, and He has a message for them that He's going to bring the day of the Lord upon them in judgment. But at the beginning of chapter 2, we also saw that God offered His people mercy an opportunity to repent and seek Him. So that's where we're picking up today. We're focusing on Zephaniah chapter 2, verse 4 to chapter 3, verse 8. And we're going to see a similar theme of judgment. And this time, God is not only going to address His people Judah, but some of the neighboring nations around them. So let's listen as Jeff reads the text for us. Again, this is Zephaniah 2, verse 4 through chapter 3, verse 8 reading from the Christian Standard Bible. For Gaza will be abandoned, and Ashkelon will become a ruin. Ashdod will be driven out at noon, and Ekron will be uprooted. Woe, inhabitants of the seacoast, nation of the Cherethites! The word of the Lord is against you, Canaan, the land of the Philistines. I will destroy you until there is no one left. The seacoast will become pasturelands with caves for shepherds and pens for sheep. The coastland will belong to the remnant of the house of Judah. They will find pasture there. They will lie down in the evening among the houses of Ashkelon, for their Lord their God will return to them and restore their fortunes. I have heard the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites, who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. Therefore, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord of armies, the God of Israel. Moab will be like Sodom and the Ammonites like Gomorrah, a place overgrown with weeds, a salt pit, and a perpetual wasteland. The remnant of my people will plunder them. The remainder of my nation will dispossess them. This is what they get for their pride, because they have taunted and acted arrogantly against the people of the Lord of armies. The Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. Then all the distant coasts and the islands of the nations will bow down and worship to him, each in its own place. You Cushites will also be slain by my sword. He will also stretch out his hand against the north and destroy Assyria. He will make Nineveh a desolate ruin, dry as the desert. Herds will lie down in the middle of it, every kind of wild animal. Both eagle owls and herons will roost in the capitals of its pillars. Their calls will sound from the window but devastation will be on the threshold, for he will expose the cedar work. This is the jubilant city that lives in security, that thinks to herself, I exist and there's no one else. What a desolation she has become, a place for wild animals to lie down. Everyone who passes by her scoffs and shakes his fist. Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. She is not obeyed. She has not accepted discipline. She is not trusted in the Lord. She is not drawn near to her God. The princes within her are roaring lions. Her judges are wolves of the night, which leave nothing for the morning. Her prophets are reckless, treacherous men. Her priests profane the sanctuary. They do violence to instruction. 
The righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. He applies his justice morning by morning. He does not fail at dawn. Yet the one who does wrong knows no shame. I have cut off the nations. Their corner towers are destroyed. I have laid waste their streets with no one to pass through. Their cities lie devastated without a person, without an inhabitant. I thought, you will certainly fear me and accept correction. Then her dwelling place would not be cut off, based on all that I had allocated to her. However, they became more corrupt in all their actions. Therefore, wait for me. This is the Lord's declaration. Until the day I rise up for plunder, for my decision is to gather nations, to assemble kingdoms, and or to pour out my indignation on them. All my burning anger from the whole earth will be consumed by the fire of my jealousy. Okay, so we're going to break this down into three sections like we did last time. If you are looking at the text with us, then we're going to break it down, Zephaniah chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. That's going to be our first section God is speaking to the nations about how he's going to bring judgment to them. In chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, God is going to hone in on Jerusalem, judgment against his people, Judah. And then finally, in verses 6 through 8, God is going to kind of zoom out, and he's going to say, I'm going to judge all peoples, kind of giving a summary of all of this. So in our first section, God is talking to the nations around Judah, chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. What What's the first thing that you notice here? Well, I guess I'll have to rephrase the question as I answer it. It's not really the first time uh, that I looked at this. This is probably more of the the <laughs> third or fourth time and after looking at some resources as well. And I recognize that there are other nations that God's addressing here, the Philistines, the Ammonites, and the Moabites, the Assyrians, the Cushites just get that one verse there in verse 12. But something that I saw after doing some research, was looking at or thinking about a map of the area. God is literally outlining the nations that physically surround Judah. You've got Philistia to the west, Moab and Ammon to the east, Cush, that's also known as Ethiopia in this time, down to the south, and then Assyria and Nineveh to the north. So it's almost like God is setting up this, I am actually going to judge all the nations around you. And not just in a metaphorical sense, but in a literal sense. He is looking at these nations and hopefully I'm not stepping on your toes with, or not stepping on your material with this. I don't, don't think I'm stepping on your toes right now at all. But uh, stepping forward with thinking about he's looking at how these nations have treated his people and how the remnant of this is going to prevail. So I think that's just really amazing to see that here these are not just random nations, but these are nations that are directly around the people of Judah. What's something that you notice your first or, or second, however you want to answer that question time? One of the first things that I thought of when, when I first read this, without doing any looking at other resources or anything, is it reminded me of some of the other prophets that, that did the same thing, that directly speak to other nations. Isaiah does that in chapter 13 to 23, Ezekiel 25 to 32, almost all of Amos chapter 1 is God's judgment against nations. And so it just reminded me of, of how often that happens when God's prophets that are usually directing their messages to Israel or Judah also have a message to surrounding nations. We'll get into kind of the implications of that here shortly, but it's, it's not just Zephaniah who does this. 
and we think about why God is bringing judgment on these nations. With two of these nations, he doesn't get specific why he's judging them. Philistia mm-hmm. and Cush, he doesn't really explain what what he's holding them accountable for. Yeah. But with Ammon and Moab, he does. In verse 8, he's, he says, I have heard of the taunting of Moab and the insults of the Ammonites, who have taunted my people and threatened their territory. So Moab and Ammon are being held accountable for their proud treatment of Israel. And there's a lot of history there, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Their, their history of, of treatment against the Israelites goes back to the book of Numbers when the prophet Balaam tried to incite or curse the people, and he encouraged the king of Moab to invite them to their idolatrous feasts and that kind of thing. Yeah. And so there's a lot of history there, and apparently they're still at it. They're still at this point where when Judah's getting lower, they're kind of taunting them and saying, look at us, we're better than you, that that kind of attitude. Yeah, and even that should be that if anyone's going to support or help Judah or Israel, shouldn't it be their distant family? I guess that you could probably say that about anybody, but looking specifically at, isn't it Genesis 19 with Lot? That mm-hmm. these are Lot's descendants, and so the, I don't know if you want to call them cousins, or I guess maybe just distant relatives is the best way to put it, to see them treat Israel like that, God is not pleased at all in the way that they're treating them in that way. And there's a little bit of irony, now that you mentioned Lot, remember that all happened in Genesis 19 because Lot was being rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, and in verse 9, God says that Moab and Ammon are going to be just like Sodom and Gomorrah uh, <laughs> yeah. as they're laid waste. Yeah. And so there's a little bit of irony in how God is handling that. Right, for sure. But we also see a reason for why God's bringing judgment against Assyria. I love the statement in verse 15, just the arrogance. I exist, there's no one else. And boy, God is going to teach them a point that that proud attitude that's led them to be the violent people that they are, as he has used them in the past to bring judgment upon Israel, that is not going to be allowed going forward to continue while God is in control. And not that's like while God's in control as if it's a limited thing, but since God is in control. It's probably a better way to say that. And so it's always important to see in, in these moments where we can find something in the text a reason behind God bringing judgment. Sometimes we might get the picture of God wipes out a nation, that makes God a bad guy. And that's a lot of times how people who don't take the scripture seriously or don't believe in God want to paint him that way. But I think we need to remember that God is just, and that's more than just what we see in Exodus 34, verse 7. That's also what we see here in the words of the prophets, where God gives reason often for what he does. Yeah, and and a quick historical note about Assyria. At this time, Assyria was kind of the world power. This is not the height of their power, but they're the most powerful nation at the time. And Israel has already been taken captive, and they're basically knocking on on Judah's door. And here's a a message to them. You know, in in your time of pride, you're not going to last. And I love the way he describes in verses 13 and 14 the desolation of of Nineveh, because it's complete. You've got this great capital city, and he says it's going to be just dust, Mm -hmm. desolate ruin, dry as the desert. And all these animals are going to take up residence there, these animals that you would just think of living in the wilderness. 
And actually, what happened in 612, I believe, is that Nineveh was destroyed, and for centuries it was undiscovered. Yeah. And it wasn't, you know, several hundred years later till they actually found remnants of the city of Nineveh. So what God says here actually ends up happening. And we see that there's that type of destructive language used for each of these sections. We're kind of overlooking Cush. I I can't say why, other than the Spirit just inspires Zephaniah to say just this one verse about it, and all we have is they're going to be slain by the sword of God. But we see language for the Philistines, how all the things that they enjoy, their pastures, are going to go to other people, or they're going to become desolations type of things. We're going to see what we saw for Ammon and the Moabites. He talks about how they're going to be salt pits, or I'm looking for verse 9 here, a place overgrown with weeds, a wasteland. Again, that type of language of what happens to these people is going to be quite the judgment to say that things are going to change. When I think about what he says to Assyria and these animals that overtake I've seen writers talk about the fact that, think about this is a big, bustling city, and you would never expect something like an owl to take up home in there. Or some of the other translations talk about hedgehogs. There's kind of an unknown here in the Hebrew about what is the specific animal. But the point is wild animals. I get that image in my mind of that movie I Am Legend. You you, Mm -hmm. You have New York City and deer and wolves and other you know, wild animals are, are roaming and taking inhabitant in the city because of this zombie apocalypse or whatever you want to call it. And so it's a great scene, a great picture of God's power and how amazing he is. But we do see some of the hope in there, some of this remnant language. God won't destroy his people completely because we see them either receiving blessings from Moab or Ammon or from the judgment that's on Moab or Ammon or judgment on the Philistines. But what's the end goal here? What what are we trying to accomplish with this? I think what God says in verse 11 answers that. He says that the Lord will be terrifying to them when he starves all the gods of the earth. That's an interesting statement. God's mm-hmm. going to starve all the gods, almost as if they're so dependent upon him, you know, that that he's going to take away their food and all the sacrifices that people would offer up to these gods. They're not going to be able to do that any longer, so they're just going to starve. And then all the distant coasts and islands of the nations will bow in worship to him. Mm -hmm. And so I think the end goal is that all the nations would leave their idols and, and look at God and serve Yahweh as the one true God and see him as the God that made them and that built their empires and gave them the boundaries of their lands and and all that that all may know that he is the lord instead of trusting in idols yeah and so i think that's the main point of of the end of chapter two is to is to see that all these nations are subject to god but then in chapter three he really zeroes in again on his people on his people judah so Mm -hmm. what do you notice here in chapter three verses one through five about what he says to his people. I think, again, something we saw in chapter 1 was an emphasis for the leaders, and it's not just the leaders. I think God is aware of everybody here. But in chapter 3, verse 4, verse 3, you've got the princes, the prophets, the priests, and the judges are all guilty of violence or deception. I, I like what it says about the priests. What you see about the priests, their two functions are to 
help offer sacrifices and maintain worship. They're not doing that well. It says that they're doing violence to instruction. They're not teaching well. So both of their main responsibilities, they're failing at. All that to say is we see problems in the leadership here, and it just jumps out to me of how important it is to have leaders who are going to try to bring people to the Lord rather than profane the name of the Lord or, or bring a bad reputation on the name of the Lord with what they do. Yeah. And it's really striking how he how he transitions all of the sudden to from talking about these other nations who Judah would would view as their national enemies and maybe they'd be rooting, you know, got along. <laughs> yeah, yeah, destroy those other nations, bring yeah. them down. Yeah. And then all of a sudden he makes this really abrupt transition to his people. Mm-hmm. Okay, we've talked about them, now it's time to talk about you. And he says in verse 1, "Woe to the city that is rebellious and defiled." the oppressive city. Very, very striking language. In chapter 2 and verse 1, he called them an undesirable nation. And and so what God is doing is basically lumping Judah in with the rest of the nations and saying, you act just like them, sometimes even worse, and so you're going to be judged just like them for all of these reasons we talked about, we saw in chapter 1, their idolatry, their injustice, their kind of self-satisfied attitude. Some of that was true of the Gentile nations, but also true of Judah. So they're going to be brought down just like the others. Yeah. And I think there's a great contrast of God there in verse 5, where it talks about the righteous Lord is in her. He does no wrong. But at the end of that verse, you see, but the people who don't understand, the one who, who does wrong, they know no shame. Or... You know, he does justice in the morning, as contrast to the judges that are wolves that leave nothing for the morning. They're doing their violence throughout the night, and at that point there's no good that can be done because they're ruining the lives of people. And so there's a great powerful moment in here to show that, yes, the leaders are bad, but God is still good. And I think that's a a constant reminder throughout books like this, and a constant reminder we need to tell ourselves is, yes, these are leaders of God's people who should be representing God or following the Lord and then leading the people to follow the Lord. But don't think just because God's leaders are like that doesn't mean that God is a bad God or that God is wicked. God is still good, and Zephaniah makes the point here with that, that God is still righteous. Yeah, and I think that point about leadership is is really important. God holds all of his people accountable but so often, especially in the prophets, he, he specifically addresses the leaders mm-hmm. and holds them to a higher standard because of their position. And when you think about not just any king or any priest, but, but priests and kings in God's nation, they were especially accountable to God because they're leading a nation that was supposed to be a light to the surrounding nations. Mm-hmm. They're leading a... a kingdom of priests, as God calls them in, in the book of Exodus. Yeah. They're supposed to be pointing people to Yahweh God, to turn from their idols and trust in Him, but they failed to do that. They've instead worked the other way around. And so, you know, you see that God does not give His people a free pass here, just because they're His special people, should encourage their humility, uh, should encourage their repentance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
Yeah. Again, God gives his reasons in verse 2. I think we, we mentioned some of the implied pride, but you can see there you know, this oppressive city she has not. And then there are those four reasons there. Obeyed, accepted discipline, trusted the Lord, drawn near to her God. All of that, the simple application for us is do the opposite, right? She hasn't yeah, done right. that, and so let's do that instead. And I, we're seeing some of that stuff. Maybe this is a good transition to verse 7, what you were saying a second ago about how God is saying, I thought that they would learn from what I've done to the people quite literally surrounding them or to nations. We see that, chapter 3, verse 7, I thought you will certainly fear me except correction. thought, you know, maybe you'll see what's going on, and maybe you'll listen to that call to repentance, but that's not happening. So as we think about this final section, these last three verses of what we're talking about today, chapter 3, verse 6 through verse 8, we're really getting to that point that we've talked about, that God is a God of all nations, not just Judah, not even just the nations directly surrounding, but all nations are in submission to God, or God has authority and rule over them and need to be in submission to God. We'll talk about potential glimmer of hope here that we're seeing in this section as well, but let's think about that idea. In this final section, what do you notice that stands out to you? Just just that word nations, it appears in verse 6, I have cut off nations. And then in verse 8, about halfway through the verse, he says, for my decision is to gather nations and to assemble kingdoms. And so again, just highlighting that idea of it's not just Judah he's addressing, but he is addressing all the people. God is the God of all nations, all empires. He is sovereign over all of them. And he's gathering them together here not to bring about a messianic kingdom, which some of the other prophets talk about. Mm-hmm. And we're see, we see glimmers of that even in Zephaniah towards the end of chapter 3. But here he's gathering all the nations together for the purpose of judging them and, and to judge them very fiercely. And so there's this emphasis on universal judgment. All of the nations are subject to him. What did you notice? Yeah. I think, again, this is another one for me that it's not really the first time. This is more of after thinking more about it and doing some other study as well. I think about verse 8. Therefore, wait for me. Who is God talking to? In that, as he talked about the nations of, wait for me to get home so I can <laughs> discipline you. Like, you know, sometimes we have may have had those moments in life or threats because of we had to wait for our dads to get home or something like that. <laughs> it seems that what God is saying there in verse eight, that's where God is speaking to that remnant we've seen a couple times throughout this chapter. In chapter two, verse uh, seven. In chapter 2, verse 8, verse 10, verse 11, as he talks about the remnant being able to enjoy some of Philistia or Moab or Ammon, it seems that what God is saying is speaking to those people. It's an invitation to trust God, to know that he'll be faithful to deal with things properly in the future. We quoted from Homer Haley last week in his commentary on the Minor Prophets. I like this statement he says about some of this section, about this idea of waiting for the Lord in this section of judgment. He says, this judgment will not be for utter extermination, but it will be of a fiery and refining nature. He goes on to say, Jehovah would make the judgment so fierce that only the purest of metal would survive. The dross would be consumed. The faithful few must look beyond the judgment of the heathen nations for the complete fulfilling of God's purpose and plan for them. I think that's a great reminder to see that day of the Lord language 
so often, and not just in the prophets, not just in isolated days, even compared to the day as we might think about the final judgment, as we see it talked about in the New Testament too. The day of the Lord is going to be that great day of judgment. But people who wait through that judgment, people who trust in God, I think we're talking about faithful people here, are going to find that on the other side of that, there's another part of the day of the Lord. And that's more what we're going to look at in next week's episode. But this this moment of hope to say that, God, I know that there's more to your plan than just wiping out the nations. God's plan doesn't just end with, I'm waiting for people to be so bad, so I just destroy everybody, the end. I mean, he sent his son to save people, right? He calls people to repent in this book, and he's calling people to wait right now, because there's more to come than just the destruction. But that's more to come in our conversation for next week. I think that's a great way to end kind of the main talk about that section. But let's make some connections and applications for today. What are some things we can think about that apply to today's world from this section of Zephaniah? We think about God being God of the nations or this judgment. What what do we take away, Emerson? I think one of the things that we talked about earlier as as an application in chapter 3, he talks about the, the princes, the judges, the prophets, the priests, these men who were to be the spiritual leaders, how they have failed to do their jobs well. The nation is suffering. And yet in verse 5, the Lord is righteous and he does no wrong. In contrast to the leaders who who do wrong and feel no shame about it. I think one of the relevant and timely lessons to learn from that is that whenever spiritual leaders fall, that doesn't it does reflect badly upon God in the way in the way people might view God. Absolutely. But that does not make God bad at all. God is always good and God is mm-hmm. always just and right. And you know, we we see a lot of spiritual leaders fall sometimes to scandal, to sin, and that has a huge impact on people. But how should we respond to that? I think is a good question. Look looking at the whole section we've talked about in, in chapters two and three. Just God is is the is the God of all the nations. That's what we've emphasized. God is so- sovereign over all, and that's a really practical point when you think about it. In Acts chapter seventeen, Paul is preaching the gospel in the city of Athens, and he's preaching to non-Jews. He's preaching to Gentiles, and he tells them about this God that they do not know, the unknown God, and how He's the one who has created all people. He has established nations and given them appointed times and boundaries, which reminds us of some of the prophets. God is over the nations. But in verse 30 and 31, he says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him, from the dead. And of course, he's speaking of Jesus there. But I think, you know, thinking about what Paul says, that God overlooked at one time the times of ignorance. That doesn't mean that God just passed over the sins of the Gentile nations, that he just forgot about them. Because we see in Zephaniah, God did not ignore them. God held them accountable. We also see God addressing some of the nations that are not his people, like um, he sent Jonah to Assyria earlier. He sent uh, Nahum to Nineveh. Uh, Obadiah, his whole book is is addressed to the nation of Edom. But I think the point that he's making here 
is that at one time, God did not hold every nation accountable to the law of Moses that he held his people to, but now he's holding everyone accountable to the same standard, and that is the, the standard of Jesus. And, and so Zephaniah kind of prepares us for that as he as God puts all of the nations under one umbrella, under his sovereignty, and that points us to the time when Jesus is going to judge all nations, but he's also going to offer reconciliation to all nations. And so I think Zephaniah, in kind of a roundabout way, prepares us for Jew and Gentiles coming together in Christ. God is going to judge them together, and he's also going to save them together in Jesus. And like you said, we'll We'll talk more about that at the end of chapter 3. So we see this glimmer of hope uh, of uh, a time coming when his people will be purified. Yeah, I hope that we can just continue to impress that maybe as you've been digging into this book with us, following along with our as we're speaking to our listeners now, uh, just that hopefully we're learning lots of things that Zephaniah, maybe not necessarily new ideas, but seeing how this continues to build up even some of our whole story ideas. We're seeing God dealing with sin. We're seeing what God is calling for people to repent from that sin, to trust in him, or how God is trying to fulfill that plan, not as if he's struggling against it, but that he's you know, working out that plan, and we're seeing that plan unfold. So this is just a rich book just because it's part of the collection of books that tells us about the Lord and how he wants all people to come to him. So let me leave you with our challenge today. It's going to be pretty simple. And it comes from 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul tells us to pray, to offer petitions and thanksgivings on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. So we want to encourage you today to pray for all the nations. God addressed all the nations here in Zephaniah, and he cares about all people. And so maybe just offer a prayer today for all the nations to know God and know that He is sovereign over them today. Thank you for tuning in to Working with the Word today. We'll finish up Zephaniah next week. Again, we hope this has been a helpful series for you all, especially if this is your first time doing some digging into this short but powerful book of the Bible. Before we go, we need your help with planning some future episodes of Working with the Word. One of our listeners, Jeff Stewart, a.k.a. my father-in-law, wrote to us a while ago suggesting a series of how to study difficult passages. This would be a series that we would sprinkle in from time to time, not necessarily back-to-back episodes, but we want your help by letting us know what passages you would like for us to cover in this difficult passages series. Emerson and I are currently thinking about passages of our own or on our own, but we want you to add to this list too. We feel this series would be most beneficial if we could engage with our audience to help you also as we're looking to study and grow ourselves. So I'll be looking for posts to comment on our social media pages on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can always send us an email with your suggestion as well. If you simply would place difficult passage series in the subject line, that would help us out a lot. Thanks. We're really looking forward to diving in with you all on the series as we approach these difficult passages that we might have shied away from before, but think it will be a great help to us. If there are other questions or topics or books of the Bible you'd like for us to cover in future episodes of Working with the Word, you can find and reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter at Working with the Word, on Instagram at workingwiththeword.podcast, or send us an email to workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. That's all one word, workingwiththewordpodcast at gmail.com. 
So until next time, may you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity.